This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, August 18th, 2020. Episode 83, Concerning Island Kingdoms, Bloodsuckers, and Flesh Eaters. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We got into some heavy material in our last episode, uh, and have been in somewhat of a heavy mood since focusing on the Black Death all the way back in March. So I wanted to shift gears and see out the summer with a kind of vacation-themed episode, or at least travel-themed. Today, we'll revisit the early 14th century book of the travels of the Franciscan friar Odoric, or in Latin, Odoricus, of either Pordenone or Friuli, depending on who you ask. He has previously featured in two episodes of this show, uh, episode 57, concerning dive doppers, paper money, and a halfway house for souls, uh, which also drew from his book of travels, and episode 58, concerning the life and many disentubements of Odoric of Pordenone, uh, which draws from a saint's life written about him a few decades after his death. I think this is lighter material, uh, but it does come with its own set of problems, Namely, it's a medieval Westerner's description of the East and its peoples, which is a path with many potholes, uh, to say the least. In our excerpt for today, Odoric certainly repeats some unflattering and derogatory fantasies about the mysterious islands east of India, but compared to many other medieval and especially later travel writers, Odoric is refreshingly, uh, I can't say non-judgmental, but less judgmental, I think is fair. He encounters beliefs and practices he disagrees with, but often he doesn't turn this into open condemnation, and even when he does condemn, he doesn't demonize or dehumanize. Well, uh, that said, in today's selection, he does specifically identify the god of a particular tribe as being a demon, uh, but that isn't the same thing as saying that the people themselves are innately demonic or wicked. Anyway, he is frequently full of praise and admiration, uh, and not just for natural wonders, but for the accomplishments of the people and kingdoms he visits. This attitude no doubt derives from his purpose in traveling and in reporting what he found. He's a missionary. He's writing to encourage more missionaries to go into the East, and his own outlook going into these places is not antagonistic. And perhaps that's why, even when he encounters people who do things that horrify or disgust him, He nonetheless doesn't see monsters or beasts, but human beings, people deserving of being brought into his faith. Although, actually, in his own writing, he never portrays himself converting anyone or doing mission work other than arguing theological points with the occasional non-Christian. It's maybe more accurate to say he's doing a kind of missionary reconnaissance uh, rather than active mission work per se. Anyway, Odoric is not a perfect witness, but he's not a bad one, and he's quite significant to the history of Western knowledge of the East. His name may not grace swimming pools like his more famous peer, Marco Polo, but by a number of measures, he's perhaps a better informant. Back in the Roman period, Western sailors had regular contact with the East, starting with Egypt and continuing all the way to Southeast Asia. But after the fall of Rome and the rise of Islam, this line of communication between Western Europe and Asia became severely restricted. While the Silk Road still existed, commerce on it was much reduced, uh, at least to its European terminus, and for much of the early Middle Ages, Frankish and Italian merchants were largely blocked from traveling and trading beyond Middle Eastern harbors. However, 
Following the Mongol conquest of the East, and after their attempt to invade Europe in the early 13th century, European leaders sought to make peaceful contact with the Mongol rulers. This was fueled by a mixture of economic and religious motivations. The economic benefits of expanded trade with a wealthy empire are pretty straightforward. A primary religious motivation was to protect Eastern Christians like the Nestorians, uh, as well as the legendary Christian kingdom of Prester John. Missionary activity itself was secondary, and actually seems to have been encouraged as much by the invitation and curiosity of the court of the Khan as by proactive efforts from the papacy. You can see this reflected in how many of the missionary writers whose texts we have spend so much time selling the importance of mission work and the desire that various local populations have for Christianity. This is rhetoric that suggests the audience back in Europe was rather skeptical about sinking resources into these missions and needed to be persuaded that this was a good investment. Franciscans like Odoric played a central role in these Eastern missions and embassies. And it's worth remembering that the Franciscan order itself is a product of the 13th century and its culture. I have to imagine that one of the things that made Franciscan friars particularly suited to this work is the connection that many of them had, starting with St. Francis himself, to Italian merchant families, people who were already seasoned long-haul travelers. I haven't found anyone among the scholars I read in preparation for this episode saying this explicitly, so maybe I'm making a false inference there. Certainly, the more common explanation is just ideological. The Franciscans approached missions as a dialogue rather than crusade and conquest, which suited the peaceable tone the Pope and European courts wanted to strike with the Mongols. And, of course, the emergence of the mendicant orders created a whole class of traveling friars who could do things normally prohibited to cloistered monks. Of course, this same engagement with the world had a darker side. It's what allowed the friars to become inquisitors in Europe at the same time that they were leading missions in Asia. Franciscan-led embassies went out starting in the 1240s, but things really kick off with John of Montecorvino, who was sent off to the court of Kublai Khan in 1289, uh, actually arriving there four years later, a reminder of what transcontinental travel was like in the 13th century. Um, and John remained in China for 35 more years, dying there having been made archbishop of this new outpost of Christendom. And through the first decades of the 1300s, you have several other notable missionaries traveling east, culminating, well, not culminating historically, uh, but for our purposes and interests today, culminating with the travels of Odoric from 1322 to 1326. Franciscan missions continued after this, of course, but those lie beyond our scope. Odoric was not sent by the Pope or on a royal embassy. At best, he had the permission of his superior in the order. It does seem to be something he very much pursued under his own initiative and desire to see the world. He traveled with merchants who helped support him, uh, alongside contributions from relatives and other benefactors. He had done some mission work for a few years in the Middle East, and spoke Armenian and Persian and probably some other local languages, and would at least have been exposed to the languages common to the merchant communities that worked the trade routes between the East and Italy, uh, both by land and by sea. I think it's safe to say that he embarked on his further voyages as someone who had already spent a great deal of time with merchants and other missionaries and was not a naive or inexperienced traveler. We will get to Odoric's text momentarily, uh, but I think it will be helpful to trace out the route he follows in this episode's excerpt from the travels. 
And doing this isn't actually all that easy. Uh, partly that has to do with the problem of place names being rendered from one language into another and getting somewhat garbled in the process. Uh, but it also has to do with uncertainties in the text itself. We do not have the original manuscript of Odoric's account of his travels, which he dictated to another Franciscan in 1330, uh, not long before his death. What we have are copies, and these earliest copies are already diverging from each other in notable ways, uh, one way being the order of what countries were visited when. So the version we'll be getting today is that translated in Volume 1 of Colonel Henry Yule's 1866 work, Cathay and the Way Thither, which is based on a manuscript from the Bibliothèque Imperiale in Paris, with a few interpolations from other manuscripts where Yule thought they added interesting details that the Parisian manuscript did not include. Yule's notes on this text are also uh, one of my main sources of scholarly hypotheses about what some of these ambiguous locations are, though I've supplemented this with a handful of more recent articles. In our excerpt, Odoric is in the middle of his passage from India to China. As best as we can reconstruct, he seems to have departed India from Madras, heading to Sumatra. And from Sumatra, he looped down to Java, and then back up to Borneo, and from there to southern Vietnam. However, getting any more specific about his various stops along the way runs us into trouble. Beyond differences in the manuscripts and imperfect matches for place names, we also have to deal with the fact that sometimes Odoric describes kingdoms, and other times islands, and that the things he ascribes to a kingdom might encompass multiple islands or only a small part of a large island. Uh, Sumatra runs into this problem, being described as a kingdom, but not necessarily the whole island of what is today Sumatra. So we can't always be sure what geographically Odoric is referring to with a single place name. Anyway, it's just after his departure from Sumatra that our excerpt for today begins. The identification of Java as his first stop seems straightforward enough. He calls it out by name. However, some scholars have suggested that the details Odoric gives, uh, particularly concerning hostilities between the island and the Mongols, actually better fit Borneo than Java, so there's an uncertainty there. The next place Odoric says he came to, he calls Pantin, which is even more likely to be a part of Borneo, and is where Odoric gives us the first known European description of bamboo, as well as an extensive explanation of the cultivation of sago. But some have suggested that Odoric's Pantin, which he says is also known as Thalamasin, is actually Pangasinan in the Philippines. And in the Philippines, a legend persists that Odoric himself celebrated the first Christmas Mass in the archipelago. However, the scholarly consensus is that Odoric's route did not take him to the Philippines, and so his Pantin is most likely part of Borneo. Another bit of naming pops up here, which might be confusing to the casual listener. Uh, Odoric calls the sea south of Pantin the Dead Sea, Mare Mortuum, which is a completely separate entity from the more famous Dead Sea in the Middle East, uh, and is clearly a sailor's name for a region of particularly dangerous waters, possibly in this case the Straits of Bali. But the general idea of extreme southern waters being a deadly boundary beyond which you dare not pass is found all over the place and could apply to lots of different parts of the ocean. Uh, there's a reason why Antarctica wasn't actually discovered until 1820. Or at least it wasn't found by anyone who was able to make a lasting record of their discovery until 1820. But returning to more tropical climes, from Pantin, Odoric takes us to the Kingdom of Zampa, 
as it's spelled in the manuscript Yule is using. Uh, other manuscripts have the more usual forms, Kampa or Champa here, which was a medieval kingdom in what is now southern Vietnam. In fact, the Cham people, uh, from which this kingdom derives its name, were mostly independent until they were invaded by the Vietnamese in the 15th century, uh, and then gradually annexed to Vietnam, principality by principality, over the next few centuries, until the last one fell in 1832. And the Choms continue to this day as an ethnic minority in Vietnam and Cambodia, where they have experienced the problems often faced by conquered and displaced minorities. But Odoric encounters their kingdom at a high point and is notably impressed by it. Our next stop introduces a geographical problem, because suddenly Odoric is talking about what appear to be the Nicobar Islands, way back westward in the Bay of Bengal, about a thousand miles away on the other side of the Malay Peninsula. There are other problems in that the description of what Odoric calls Nicobaran, and which Ewell takes to be Nicobar, doesn't really fit with the Nicobar Islands. And frankly, these are islands that Odoric tells us are populated by dog-headed people, so the name seems to have been tacked on to a mythical island of sailors' tales that Odoric was hearing about, and probably taking at face value, since dog-headed natives of distant lands have featured in medieval and ancient travel writing since Herodotus and earlier. Yule points out that dog-headed people and cannibalism, too, are things travelers are commonly told they'll encounter in lands that are always just a little further beyond wherever they currently are. Our next stop is at least consistent in continuing the journey east, back towards India, because Odoric proceeds to describe Ceylon, uh, now known as Sri Lanka. Unlike the Nicobar Islands, the details Odoric gives for Ceylon are fairly accurate, uh, allowing for some exaggeration. The particular detail about the local people using lemon juice to repel leeches is something still practiced today. Uh, and as far as leeches being a notable feature of the place, I don't know how fair this is. But I will say, if you type in Sri Lanka leeches into a YouTube search, you get quite a few hits with titles like Leeches Everywhere! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Uh, and Hiking with Leeches in Candy. And Leeches Attack! So, at least a few modern travelers have had similar reports as Odoric. From here, the text takes us to another mystery location, which Odoric calls Dandin, and the debate over what this place is meant to be is a topic I'll take up after the text, because it engages with some interesting issues we can dive into then. After this apparent return to India, Odoric's next stop is China itself, so it seems likely that there's some jumbling of the itinerary here in the manuscripts that have come down to us. Logically, he ought to have visited the places at the end of today's reading before he got to Sumatra and Java, where we start. But our next stop will be the text itself. I'll be reading from Henry Yule's translation. Back in episode 57, I read from Richard Hacklett's translation uh, from the late 1500s, partly so that I could talk a bit about the Hacklett Society and its translations of medieval travel writing. Today, I'm opting for Yule's version of Odoric since it's a little easier to follow. That said, even here I've slightly modernized Ewell's text. He loves to drop in those early modern English verb endings, hath and goeth and suffereth and asketh and so forth. Uh, and unlike using both thou and you, where there is some meaningful difference, I can't see any justification for these endings beyond pure stylistic archaism uh, to indicate this is a medieval text. My usual rule is to preserve the style of these Victorian translations, except where it actively impairs comprehension in oral performance, 
Well, in this case, it does just make it a lot harder to read aloud uh, for really, as I see it, no good reason. So I'm updating those verbs. You can thank or scold me as you see fit. Uh, Ewell also likes to drop in words that were obsolete even in his own day, and which don't always seem to be justified by etymological connections to the Latin originals. Again, it just seems to be a kind of archaizing impulse on Ewell's part. So I've inserted a few quick glosses here and there to define some obscure terms or obscure usages of familiar words. There are actually places where Richard Hacklett's 16th century translation is less obscure than what Yule is writing in the 1860s. In fact, there's one particular line in today's excerpt where I'm going to drop in an audio footnote of Hacklett's version, since Yule deliberately masks a certain piece of information, presumably out of Victorian decorum, whereas our Tudor translator has no qualms about laying the matter out straight. Uh, but we'll get there. One other little difference that I find weirdly charming, uh, charming's not quite the right word, but whatever, uh, has to do with the description of the leeches of Ceylon. The Latin text has an odd redundancy in it, where it tells us about a lake here that is full of many herudines and sanguisugai. These are both words that mean leech. The first is of unknown etymology, but the second is literally from Latin for bloodsuckers, sanguis sugere. Uh, Yule just collapses this pair and writes that the water greatly abounds in leeches. Hacklet stays closer to the Latin original, writing, This water is full of horse leeches and bloodsuckers. I'm not sure why he goes for horse leeches specifically, but he sticks with it, and that is his term for the remainder of the passage. So even though I'll be reading Yule's plain leeches, in your own head you can expand that to the more evocative, if perhaps less accurate, horse leeches. And now that I've given you that lovely image to hold in your head, here are Odoric's travels through the islands of India and Southeast Asia, as translated by Henry Yule. of that realm is a great island, Java by name, which has a compass of a good 3,000 miles, and the king of it has subject to himself seven crowned kings. Now this island is populous exceedingly, and is the second best of all islands that exist, for in it grow camphor, cubibs, cardamoms, nutmegs, and many other precious spices. It also has very great store of all victuals, save wine. The king of this island has a palace which is truly marvelous, for it is very great and has very great staircases, broad and lofty, and the steps thereof are of gold and silver alternately. Likewise, the pavement of the palace has one tile of gold and the other of silver, and the wall of the same is on the inside plated all over with plates of gold, on which are sculpted knights all of gold which have great golden circles round their heads, such as we give in these parts to the figures of saints. And these circles are all beset with precious stones. Moreover, the ceiling is all of pure gold, and to speak briefly, this palace is richer and finer than any existing at this day in the world. Now, the great Khan of Cathay many a time engaged in war with this king, 
but this king always vanquished and got the better of him, and many other things there be which I write not. Near to this country is another, which is called Panten, but others call it the Lamasin. The king whereof has many islands under him. Here be found trees that produce flour, and some that produce honey, others that produce wine, and others a poison, the most deadly that exists in the world. For there is no antidote to it known except one, and that is that if anyone has imbibed that poison, he shall take of Stercus Humanum, and dilute it with water, and of this potion shall he drink, and so shall he be absolutely quit of the poison. Or, as Hacklet more plainly puts it, If any man hath taken of the poison and would be delivered from the danger thereof, let him temper the dung of a man in water, and so drink a good quantity thereof, and it expels the poison immediately, making it to avoid at the fundament. And the men of this country, being nearly all rovers, when they go to battle they carry every man a cane in the hand, about a fathom in length, and put into one end of it an iron bodkin poisoned with this poison, and when they blow into the cane, the bodkin flies and strikes whom they list, and those who are thus stricken incontinently die. But, as for the trees that produce flour, tis after this fashion. These are thick, but not of any great height. They are cut into with an axe round about the foot of the stem, so that a certain liquor flows from them, resembling size, a kind of glutinous primer or ground. Now this is put into bags made of leaves, and put for fifteen days in the sun, and after that space of time a flower is found to have formed from the liquor. This they steep for two days in sea water, and then wash it with fresh water, and the result is the best paste in the world, from which they make whatever they choose, cates of sorts, or delicacies, and excellent bread, of which I, Friar Odoric, have eaten, for all these things I have seen with my own eyes. And this kind of bread is white outside, but inside it is somewhat blackish. By the coast of this country, towards the south, is the sea called the Dead Sea. The water whereof runs ever towards the south, and if anyone falls into that water, he is never found more. And if the shipmen go but a little way from the shore, they are carried rapidly downwards and never return again. And no one knows whither they are carried, and many have thus passed away, and it has never been known what became of them. In this country also there be canes or reeds like great trees, and full sixty paces in length. There be also canes of another kind, which are called kasan, and these always grow along the ground like what we call dog's grass, and at each of their knots they send out roots, and in such wise extend themselves for a good mile in length. And in these canes are found certain stones, which be such that if any man wear one of them upon his person, he can never be hurt or wounded by iron in any shape. And so, for the most part, the men of that country do wear such stones upon them. And when their boys are still young, they take them and make a little cut in the arm and insert one of these stones to be a safeguard against any wound by steel. And the little wound thus made in the boy's arm is speedily healed by applying to it the powder of a certain fish. And thus, through the great virtue of those stones, the men who wear them become potent in battle and great corsairs at sea. But those who, from being shipmen on that sea, have suffered at their hands, have found out a remedy for the mischief, 
for they carry as weapons of offense sharp stakes of very hard wood, and arrows likewise that have no iron on the points, and as those corsairs are but poorly harnessed, or armored, the shipmen are able to wound and pierce them through with these wooden weapons, and by this device they succeed in defending themselves most manfully. Of these canes called Kassan, they make sails for their ships, dishes, houses, and a vast number of other things of the greatest utility to them. And many other matters there be in that country, which it would cause great astonishment to read or hear tell of, wherefore I am not careful, or concerned, to write them at present. At a distance of many days from this kingdom is another, which is called Zampa, and tis a very fine country, having great store of victuals and of all good things. The king of the country, it was said when I was there, had, what with sons and with daughters, a good two hundred children, for he has many wives and other women whom he keeps. This king has also fourteen thousand tame elephants, which he made to be kept and tended by his boars, or peasants as here oxen and various other animals are kept in partnership. And other folk keep elephants there just as commonly as we keep oxen here. And in that country there is one thing which is really wonderful. For every species of fish that is in the sea visits that country in such vast numbers that at the time of their coming the sea seems to consist of nothing else but fish. And when they get near the beach, they leap ashore, and then the folk come and gather them as many as they list. And so these fish continue coming ashore for two or three days together. And then a second species of fishes comes and does the same as the first, and so with the other species each in turn and in order until the last, and this they do but once in the year. And when you ask the folk of that country how this comes about, they tell you in reply that the fish come and act in that fashion in order to pay homage to their emperor. In that country also, I saw a tortoise bigger in compass than the dome of St. Anthony's Church in Padua. And many other like things be there, which, unless they were seen, would be past belief. Wherefore, I care not to write them. When a married man dies in this country, his body is burned and his living wife along with it. For they say that she should go to keep company with her husband in the other world also. Departing from that country and sailing towards the south over the ocean sea, I found many islands and countries, where among was one called Nicoveran. And this is a great isle, having a compass a good two thousand miles, and both the men and the women there have faces like dogs. And these people worship the ox as their god. Wherefore they always wear upon the forehead an ox made of gold or silver, in token that he is their god. All the folk of that country, whether men or women, go naked, wearing nothing in the world but a handkerchief to cover their shame. They be stalwart men, and stout in battle, going forth to war, naked as they are, with only a shield that covers them from head to foot. And if they hap to take anyone in war who cannot produce money to ransom himself withal, they do straightway eat him. But if they can get money from him, they let him go. 
and the king of that country wears round his neck a string of three hundred very big pearls, for that he makes to his gods daily three hundred prayers. He carries also in his hand a certain precious stone called a ruby, a good span in length and breadth, so that when he has this stone in his hand it shows like a flame of fire. And this, it is said, is the most noble and valuable gem that exists at this day in the world, and the great emperor of the Tartars of Cathay has never been able to get it into his possession, either by force or by money or by any device whatever. The king attends to justice and maintains it, and throughout his realm all men may fare safely. And there be many other things in this kingdom that I care not to write of. There is also another island called Ceylon, which has a compass of a good 2,000 miles. There be found therein an infinite number of serpents, and many other wild animals in great numbers, especially elephants. In this country also there is an exceeding great mountain, of which the folk relate that it was upon it that Adam mourned for his son one hundred years. In the midst of this mountain is a certain beautiful level place in which there is a lake of no great size, but having a great depth of water. This, they say, was derived from the tears shed by Adam and Eve, but I do not believe that to be the truth, seeing that the water naturally springs from the soil. The bottom of this pool is full of precious stones, and the water greatly abounds in leeches. The king takes not those gems for himself, but for the good of his soul, once or twice a year, he suffers the poor to search the water and take away whatever stones they can find. But, that they may be able to enter the water in safety, they take lemons and bruise them well, and then copiously anoint the whole body therewith. And after that, when they dive into the water, the leeches do not meddle with them. And so it is that the poor folk go down into the pool and carry off precious stones, if they can find them. The water which comes down from the mountain issues forth by this lake, and the finest rubies are dug there, good diamonds too are found, and many other good stones. And where that water descends into the sea, there be found fine pearls. Wherefore the saying goes that this king has more precious stones than any other king in the world. In this island there be sundry kinds of animals, both of birds and other creatures, and the country folk say that the wild beasts never hurt a foreigner, but only those who are natives of the island. There be also certain birds as big as geese, which have two heads. And this island has also great store of victuals and of many other good things, whereof I do not write. Departing from that island and going towards the south, I landed at a certain great island which is called Dondin, and this signifies the same as unclean. They who dwell in that island are an evil generation, who devour raw flesh and every other kind of filth. They have among them an abominable custom, for the father will eat the son, the son the father, the wife will eat the husband, or the husband the wife, and tis in this way. Suppose that the father of someone is ill, the son then goes to the astrologer or priest, for tis the same thing, and says thus, Sir, go, I pray, and inquire of our God whether my father shall be healed of this infirmity or shall die of it. Then the priest and he whose father is ill go both unto the idol, which is made of gold or silver, and make a prayer to it, and say, Lord, thou art our God, and as our God we adore thee. Answer to that we ask of thee. Such a one is ailing grievously, must he die, or shall he be delivered from his ailment? We ask thee. 
Then the demon replies by the mouth of the idol and says, Thy father shall not die, but shall be freed from that ailment, and thou must do such and such things, and so he shall recover. And so the demon shows the man all that he is to do for his father's recovery, and he returns to his father accordingly and tends him diligently until he be entirely recovered. But if the demon reply that the father will die, then the priest goes to him and puts a linen cloth over his mouth and so suffocates him and he dies. And when they have thus slain him, they cut him in pieces and invite all their friends and relations and all the players of the country round about to come to the eating of him. And eat him they do, with singing of songs and great merrymaking. But they save his bones and bury them underground with great solemnity. And any of the relatives who have not been invited to this wedding feast, as it were, deem themselves to have been grievously slighted. I rebuked these people sharply for so acting, saying to them, Why do ye act thus against all reason? Why, were a dog slain and put before another dog, he would by no means eat thereof. And why should you do thus, who seem to be men endowed with reason? And their answer was, We do this lest the flesh of the dead should be eaten of worms. For if the worm should eat his flesh, his soul would suffer grievous pains. We eat his flesh, therefore, that his soul suffer not. And so, let me say what I would, they would not believe otherwise, nor quit that custom of theirs. And there be many other strange things in those parts which I write not, for unless a man should see them, he never could believe them. For in the whole of the world there be no such marvels as in that realm of India. What things I have written are only such as I was certain of, and such as I cannot doubt, but they are as I have related them. So, that was quite a sightseeing itinerary. Like many medieval travelers and medieval natural historians, Odoric interweaves startlingly clear and specific eyewitness observations with outlandish tales and legends. And given how often he tells us that he's choosing not to write about the stuff you really wouldn't believe, a modern reader might well find him still a bit overly credulous. But a few of the more absurd things he reports could have an underlying truth to them. For example, the two-headed birds he describes might have a non-mythical explanation. While there isn't a bird species with two heads, the rhinoceros hornbill, native to Borneo, Java, and other rainforests of the region, has what looks like a double beak. They have a long toucan-like beak curving down, with a second structure of about the same size on top of it curving up, almost a mirror image of the beak below. And in Sri Lanka itself, which is where Odoric places the two-headed bird, you find the Malabar Pied Hornbill, which also has a similar second beak-like growth, though in this case it curves downward along the top of the main beak, and is a little less dramatic than the rhinoceros hornbill. But it would be easy to see how a report of a bird with what looks like two beaks, or two mouths, could be passed along and badly translated or distorted into a bird with two heads. Yule suggests that a similar kind of garbling might be behind the tortoise with the shell as big as the dome of St. Anthony's Church in Padua, uh, in this case, garbling by Odoric's transcriber. 
Yule paints this scene in his introduction to Odoric. Quote, The friar, be it remembered, was in the convent of St. Anthony when he dictated the story, perhaps lying ill, as some of his biographers assert. He tells William de Salonia that he saw a very big tortoise. How big? quoth Guillermo all agape. Was it as big as the dome yonder? Well, yes, says the sick traveler, perhaps without turning to look, and certainly without making a very accurate comparison. I dare say it might be. And down it goes in regular narration. End quote. Uh, I can also imagine a version that doesn't rely on Odoric's inattentiveness to the comparison, but just the effects of perspective. Uh, if, in that room, the dome was nearby in view out the window, Odoric might have made such a comparison, meaning the tortoise shell was as big as how, from this distance, the dome looks in the window. You know, like how we might say a quarter is the size of the moon, or something like that. We might also excuse some other exaggerated sizes. Most of the coastline links he gives are considerably larger than reality, but Odoric is presumably not doing any of his own surveying, and coastline measurement is a famously intractable problem. Uh, additionally, there is some just conventional hyperbole, uh, describing a gym that a king wears as being two or even four times as big as it actually was, maybe bad journalism by our standards, but was kind of par for the course among Odoric's literary peers, I'd say. Ewell also excuses another extreme claim of wealth by noting that a palace whose walls are covered in gold and silver leaf could well be mistaken by an impressionable witness for being made from solid bricks of precious metal. So, some of the outlandish claims Odoric makes might not be quite as fantastical as they appear on the surface. But that does leave us with the question of what to do with his account of the cannibal island of Dondin. Dondin falls in the ambiguous and probably out-of-sequence bit of the itinerary where we seem to teleport from east to west and back again by hundreds of miles between stops, and that makes locating Dondin geographically quite difficult. Yule says the identification of this island is completely obscure, and he's unconvinced that anything in its specific details actually indicates uh, that Odoric had first-hand experience there, especially compared to how thoroughly he describes other places and their practices. Of course, to accept this, you have to throw out the friar's claims to have argued with the inhabitants over their cannibalistic funerary practices. Unless, that is, you imagine that Odoric perhaps debated someone over the ethics of cannibalism, but this person could well have been a sailor or other traveler, maybe claiming ancestry on such an island, uh, and such a person may well have been pulling one over on the credulous friar. Uh, why not take this at face value, though, you might ask? Um, isn't South Sea's cannibalism a real thing? The answer to that is a soft yes, uh, but the important corollary question is, have accounts of South Sea's cannibalism been greatly exaggerated and sensationalized, and the answer there is a much more emphatic, yes, they have. But, you say, didn't we all learn about the prion disease Kuru, famously transmitted among the Foray people of Papua New Guinea through the eating of brains of their dead? Uh, isn't Odoric describing a real practice? Well, again, yes, uh, though Papua New Guinea would be quite a detour for Odoric, and what we see in the islands he did visit, as reported by other travelers and later scientists and colonial officers, is that accusations that a tribe engages in cannibalism are not uncommon, but they're always directed by one tribe at a distant tribe or at an enemy. The people in northern Borneo say that those in the south are cannibals, and the people in the south say that it's the northerners that are the cannibals. Meanwhile, actual evidence of cannibalism is extremely thin to non-existent. Uh, and that's not just right now in the 21st century, 
This is also what you find British agents reporting all the way back in the 1800s, saying that there's a lot of slanderous talk and no evidence. It's possible that a combination of some symbolic practices with the same kind of distortion that gave us the two-headed birds might help explain the widespread belief in cannibal tribes in some of these islands. I read an interesting article about a kind of illusion or echo of cannibalism in Borneo in the treatment of the dead. Uh, this article is entitled Wine of the Corpse, Indo-Cannibalism and the Great Feast of the Dead in Borneo by Peter Metcalf, published in the journal Representations in 1987. Metcalf describes how the Barawan people of central northern Borneo prepare rice wine in very large sealed jars, which sit on the family veranda while fermentation takes place. But they also prepare their dead for burial using the same kind of jars. A couple of days after death, the corpse is put in a fetal position in a jar, sealed up, and left to decompose, with the liquids inside being drained via a small bamboo pipe that feeds out of the bottom of the jar. Sometimes this drainage goes just into a sump in the ground, but sometimes it's collected in its own smaller jar for separate disposal. Sometimes the large jar is set up on a platform in the graveyard, but it's also sometimes kept on the veranda, just like those identical rice wine jars. Eventually, after sufficient decay, the bones are removed from the jar and put into the graveyard. Because the rice wine production and this corpse treatment involve similar equipment, often occur in the same basic locations, and yield a liquid, observers have been tempted to connect the two. Indocannibalism, the eating of one's own dead, is a known practice, as my fictional representation of you pointed out a few minutes ago concerning Papua New Guinea. It is what Odoric describes the people of Dondin doing, uh, and it is a different thing from eating flesh either for sustenance or as a way of treating slain enemies, as he alleges the dog-headed people of Nicoveran do. Indo-cannibalism is what spread Kuru, uh, not headhunting cannibalism, as some seem to assume. And of course, the Eucharist is a form of symbolic Indo-cannibalism that our friar would have some experience with. Curiously, Odoric offers far less judgment of the dog-headed people of Nicoveran who eat the enemies they can't ransom than he does the people of Dondin who merely eat their own dead as an act of respect, uh, who get some of the most negative characterization of any people in his book with this abominable custom. Why? Well, we might note that the eating of enemies is presented as part and parcel of the Nicoveran's stout and vigorous warrior spirit whereas the funerary practices of Don Din are this ultimate representation of how they are polluted and unclean. I'm not quite sure what this means. Uh, does it show how warfare excuses certain violations of taboo? Uh, and if so, how odd is it that a Franciscan would be attracted to that kind of martial virtue? Um, or is this about an unstated assumption that the eating of the dead is a satanic mockery of the Eucharist or something like that? Odoric gives us so little elaboration on these points that you could probably float a dozen different plausible readings of this difference without getting anywhere conclusive. Anyway, back to Borneo. One can easily imagine a naive visitor seeing these enormous jars in a Barawan village and assuming that the dead are being turned into a wine that the family or community would then ritually drink, especially since rice wine itself often features in funerary observances. Even the anthropologists, Metcalf argues, in the absence of any actual evidence of cannibalism either in the present culture of the tribe or in cultural memory or tradition, 
The anthropologists are tempted to assume that this treatment of the dead is a vestige of something that once, maybe thousands of years earlier, was an act of endocannibalism, just as May Day bonfire celebrations have been imagined by some to be sanitized echoes of ancient human sacrifice rituals. In his article, Metcalf goes on to explore the dangers of making these tempting connections. He doesn't dismiss entirely the idea that some form of ancient endocannibalism might lie behind the current practice, but he also points out that there isn't really anything to prove that it does beyond the anthropologist simply noticing a similarity. In other words, it hinges on the human brain's impulse for pattern recognition, something that can so often lead us astray. Pattern recognition gives us stereotypes, and it also helps establish conventions, and that may be another factor at play in how Odoric perceives and construes whatever actual information he was working with, uh, if you don't just write him off as a liar and a fabulist. Uh, and I'm not inclined to. But Odoric's account of his debate with the cannibals has itself a striking similarity to another famous bit of anthropological writing, Herodotus's Historiae. Uh, in Book 3, Chapter 38, Herodotus illustrates an example of what we'd call moral or cultural relativism that occurred among visitors to the Persian court. Here's what he writes, as given in the Penguin Classics edition, translated by Aubrey de Selincourt. If anyone, no matter who, were given the opportunity of choosing from amongst all the nations in the world the beliefs which he thought best, he would inevitably, after careful consideration of their relative merits, choose those of his own country. Everyone, without exception, believes his own native customs and the religion he was brought up in to be the best, and that being so, it is unlikely that anyone but a madman would mock at such things. There is abundant evidence that this is the universal feeling about the ancient customs of one's country. One might recall, in particular, an account told of Darius. When he was king of Persia, he summoned the Greeks who happened to be present at his court and asked them what they would take to eat the bodies of their fathers. They replied that they would not do it for any money in the world. Later, in the presence of the Greeks and through an interpreter so that they could understand what was said, he asked some Indians of the tribe called Kalatiai who do in fact eat their parents' dead bodies, what they would take to burn them. They uttered a cry of horror and forbade him to mention such a dreadful thing. One can see by this what custom can do, and Pindar, in my opinion, was right when he called it king of all. We've already seen the dog-headed people also described by Herodotus making an appearance in Odoric. It doesn't seem implausible that another bit of Herodotus might have made its way into a depiction of another extreme condition of humanity. Uh, and Odoric needn't have any knowledge himself of Herodotus for this to happen. He could still pick these up as traveler's tales. Indeed, it's a bit of a chicken-and-egg question. Or not really chicken-and-egg, but... I guess more of a feedback loop, uh, where Herodotus records some 5th century BCE traveler's tales, but then because Herodotus's work becomes so well known, those tales get continually reinforced in the ongoing oral tradition, and maybe even reintroduced into places where they'd been long forgotten. Uh, and even if you yourself had never read one of the marvelous medieval bestiaries we have filled with these monstrous races on the edge of the known world, if you talk to travelers, you would undoubtedly hear about them. Someone's always sailed with someone else whose cousin's brother-in-law actually saw one. I swear. 
Yule has a nice line about the perennial nature of these tales. He writes, quote, Stories like that related here about the treatment of the sick or the aged were told in old times, as by Herodotus, of the Padaei and other people, and are still very rife in the East in regard to certain races, just as stories of men with tales are. But the alleged locality shifts with the horizon. End quote. So back to our original question. What island is Odoric's Don Din, if it exists at all? Could it be yet another part of Borneo, uh, perhaps with some mistaken perception of endocannibalism, like in the example of the Barawan? I mean, it could be. Uh, this doesn't fit with Odoric saying he sailed south from Ceylon, or Sri Lanka, to get to Donden, but since there basically isn't anything south of Sri Lanka, uh, except kind of the Maldives, and they don't fit with Odoric's itinerary, the placement of Donden, again, assuming it was a real place that Odoric visited, pretty much has to allow that some error has been made here, either in Odoric's memory or in the copying of the text. So maybe it should have been slotted in during the circuit of Java and Borneo. Or maybe it belongs to the similarly misplaced description of the Nicobar Islands. You will suggest that the name Don Din has in it an echo of Andaman, as in the Andaman Islands, which are adjacent to Nicobar, but again, nowhere close to south of Sri Lanka, but rather far to the northeast on the other side of the Bay of Bengal off the coast of Myanmar. I actually have a lot that I'd like to share about the Andaman Islands, since they've been a place I've been fascinated by for years, uh, due initially to Sherlock Holmes, of all things. Uh, this episode, though, is sinking into hazardous waters under the weight of its commentary already, so I'm going to have to save my Andaman Islands info for a Patreon bonus appendix. Before we wrap up, I did want to give a relevant shout-out to a listener. Lindsay wrote in with some comments on Guy de Chaliac's treatments for the plague from a couple of episodes back, noting that there is even more medical support for the efficacy of using dung in treatments than the little bit I had about the heat from cow manure poultices having legitimate therapeutic value. Uh, Lindsay writes, quote, Funny enough, some bird poo might actually help wound healing. It's mostly uric acid and guanine. Uric acid is a reactive oxidative signal, so it alerts the injury response. Guanine can also accelerate wound healing, end quote. Uh, and Lindsay goes on to note that the potassium nitrate in pigeon droppings could conceivably have a numbing effect, since it's the active ingredient in toothpaste for sensitive teeth. I'm not sure that any of this chemistry supports using human feces as an antidote to poison, uh, except perhaps in exactly the way Odoric says it does, uh, that is, eating it prompts you to evacuate everything out of yourself quite rapidly. Uh, if you ate the poison, that might help. If you got it from a blow dart, I'm less clear on the benefit of violent purging. But thank you, Lindsay, for sharing that. All right, our riddle this episode relates to something Odoric encountered in his travels. The riddle goes, My gait is slow, though splendidly I'm dressed, and learned, though by envious fate oppressed, Alive I nothing say, but dead my voice is blessed. This is a riddle of Symphosius, as translated by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois. Uh, this one's actually a little easier in the original Latin, with the first line really being a giveaway. Dubois stretches it a bit to fit her rhyme scheme, um, I think to the detriment of the clues Symphosius is trying to give us. Um, the second half of the original line is not though I'm splendidly dressed, but rather, my back is splendidly furnished or provided for. 
So what is slow moving with an armored back? The answer is Testudo, the tortoise. But what about the rest of the riddle? Why is it silent when living, but speaks when dead? Well, according to one myth, Apollo created the first lyre by putting strings across an empty tortoise shell. I'll be back with a new text and a new mystery word next time, uh, hopefully before the month is over. But somehow, school is already starting up. Uh, I'm only about four episodes behind where I thought I'd be after these three months of summer, but so it goes. Uh, I have a lot of episodes slated for this fall and great texts I'm doing research for right now. Um, But I will note the start of the semester crunch may keep us for the moment uh, at a tortoise's pace, but we'll see. If you'd like to get more information about this episode's text, you can find that at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can send me email uh, at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also reach out to me or get updates about new episodes through Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. And lastly, you can support the show and get access to all of our bonus content to date by becoming a patron through Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. Big thanks to our new patrons who have joined the roles since last episode. They are Fee, NDKDKDK, David, Yoav, Life Made Simple, Sarah, and Luke. Thank you all so much for your support. And patrons, look for the appendix episode to come out in a few days on your Patreon feed. So, if anyone is out there traveling in this weird pandemic summer, just remember, if you stop to dive for precious stones, be sure to limit yourself up real well first, and if you get poisoned, uh, go seek the care of a medical professional. And thanks for listening. <laughs>